0: Hello, I'm Martin Mercer. And I'm James Mastriani. You've never heard of us. We're two Brits who grew up in North London and have had varying success in the film and television industry.
1: In our ever-advancing age, we find ourselves on... The The wrong side of of Hollywood. Hollywood. (laughs) In our series of podcasts, we'll share our experiences of what it's like being a British bloke living and working... Or not in the biz. We'll discuss everything from fish and chips to things that wind us up. So stay with us... It's all uphill from here. This podcast may contain strong language. If you're of a sensitive nature or
2: easily offended, we invite you to, as they say in Blighty, jog on.
0: Good morning, Martin. Good morning, James. How are you? I'm very well in our new setup. It's so all so high-tech now. Yeah, it is high-tech. You're out of sync, though, but that doesn't matter.
1: Uh, so if I start to... play, it's no, confusing.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Oh, my God. My phone is dictating. You can feed us to chatbot GPT
1: and we can walk away and it can create the rest exactly. of the show. No exactly. problem.
0: So we have a special show today.
1: Yeah. Very excited because we're going to be interviewing your brother, Guy, I almost said governor, and I don't know why, that's why there was a slight pause. how bizarre is that, Freudian slip they would say, and I was reading, you know just to do a little bit of research, which you don't normally do, but this time I thought I'd better and so I was looking at his Wikipedia mm. and first of all I looked me up and there's fuck all, so I was like ah, okay, so I saw Guy and it's just this scroll of accomplishments, so you know, it's a little bit daunting but fortunately we know him for the person he is, and um, and uh, <laughs> that helps.
0: <laughs> I think it's going to be fun. And uh, he has some news, which is actually already out anyway. Yeah. But uh, Nice one, Guy. Thanks. Yeah. Um, but, no, it's good, though, because now we can freely talk about it. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's very exciting. So um, what else is news?
1: Uh, well, we did a lovely interview with Mary Clayball, and she was just fabulous and her one will be coming after guys and she talks everything from the days of working at boss films which was one of the biggest visual effects companies apart from industrial light and magic back in the late 80s and 90s and she started as a pa and went all the way up to shop manager and very exciting and then worked for rick baker and she's got some great stories so that's really good it's really good to interview people who have actually clawed their way out of the old trench and the uh, thing is
0: with Mary, I don't think she was in the trench to start with. We'll let our listeners listen to that uh, mm. in due course, but it's an amazing story. And for someone who was not looking to get into the entertainment industry, she certainly got in and it's a fantastic story. It's just brilliant. Yeah.
1: It's somebody who didn't really, not like us, who we foaming and dreaming of a film career. And then through chance and fate, if you want to call it that, yeah. she ended up being very the center of those visual effects companies. And makeup effects companies, and really sort of helping them create the magic
0: that they did. Exactly. Yeah, exciting now. But we will get to Mary, but first up is going to be my brother, Guy Masterson. Why does he have a different name, James? Um, I'll let Guy explain that.
1: Also, by the way, it's Guy Alexander Masterton. So I am Not was, Masterton,
0: Masterson.
1: Masterson, it's all right. Well, you know what? When you have ADHD like me, it's not funny, James, in a very serious condition. <laughs> Undiagnosed by a doctor, but nonetheless, a
0: very serious condition. <laughs> and here we go. First things first, why did you change your name from Mastroianni to Masterson?
2: Uh, well, I was in Hollywood and um, I was going up for commercials, quite a lot of commercials. And uh, I ran into this issue of being expected to be a New York Italian with the name Mastroianni, you know. Right. And then finally, in 1988, during the Seoul Olympics, I went up for a genuine Welsh part and they wanted someone who could speak Welsh or at least be able to utter a few Welsh words, which I can do. And I went in, I didn't get as far as the receptionist and she refused to let me in because on the grounds that I couldn't be Welsh with the name like Mastroianni, right. which is insane because, you know, of course, Italians don't marry Welsh women. So um, I went back to my agent uh, feeling pretty helpless. Um, this was a big commercial and he suggests Anglicising. So I did. In 1988, I Anglicised my name to Masterson. I wanted to go Guy Alexander because that was the easiest thing to do. Just drop my surname. And I found that there was a 95-year-old Guy Alexander still alive in New York. And Equity didn't allow me to do that. <laughs> so I just anglicised it as best I could. And Master Jun, which sounds a bit medical, didn't sound quite right. So Masterson was the next best thing. I had no idea about Guys and Dolls. Sky Masterson. That's Sky Masterson. <laughs> That's yeah. Sky Masterson.
1: I can't say it properly.
2: <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
1: the question that's been burning away at me for a long time is that here you are you're in los angeles you've done all these things you worked at a hotel you did very well there and then you did construction with your lovely Mm -hmm. sister at the time
2: well she was never on set with me during the construction she was just manning the phones right just to just to be clear about that i don't think i ever saw a hammer in a hand. right
1: <laughs> i was wondering why you went back to britain There you were in the center of hollywood to pursue one's acting dreams and yet you took yeah. that path back to britain which obviously has turned out very good for you but i'm just wondering what back then made you do that
2: uh, well the problem that i was facing was that i was of a limited group of brits out in la that were trying to forge their careers and we kept seeing the same faces at all the auditions And whenever they wanted a lead actor for movies or series, or even the theatre, they would raid the RSC back in England. Mm. So none of us got a shot at the big roles. We were going up for co-starring roles in TV and support roles and things like that. So if you were of that echelon that you're going up for lead roles, you know you're never going to get a biggie. You're never going to become a star. The biggest Mm. thing I ever went up for was Moonlighting. Really? Wow. Um, And I went six auditions for that and didn't get it. Yeah. The uh, well, second biggest thing I went up for was L.A. Law. And again, I didn't get it. They gave the role that I was auditioning for to Jimmy Smiths, ironically. So both of those could have turned my life around. And it was after that, those disappointments, that I decided on a whim to audition for Lambda. Mm. I had no intention of going back to Britain. I just saw this audition listed in the trade paper, which was Dramalog. And uh, I went along. I met the guy and I did my audition. And he literally offered me a place at Lambda oh. uh, to us. If you're offered a place at Lambda or RADA, you literally go, oh, my God, really? Okay, I'll take it. So I did. I was involved in a show at the time at Theatre 40 in Beverly Hills Playhouse with my girlfriend, the wonderful Sarah Partridge, and we were doing this British play, and I was getting great reviews and all of that kind of thing, and suddenly I was offered this place, and I literally announced I am leaving for London (laughs) in three weeks' time. Wow. And I sold up everything and went. Wow,
0: Amazing.
2: After seven years out there, yeah.
0: And then you ruined my life. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I wanted my
2: bedroom back, which you'd literally taken from me. (laughs) And my train set. Yes. Hmm.
0: Do you think your
1: background of studying biochemistry was it? Biochemistry and chemistry, yeah, joint honours. Right. Did you think that gave you the mind and wherewithal to study, to remember, to
2: be able to do what you do and have done, which is... Remember whole script? It absolutely has nothing to do with it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) My degree has nothing to do with it. In fact, the only time anybody ever asked me about my degree was the first proper job I went for at the Hilton in 1982. And um, I was late for the interview uh, significantly. And it was on a Monday evening and there was Monday night football happening. And this interview was at the University Hilton, which is down there on Figueroa Street, not that far from the Coliseum. And the place was blitzed. Traffic was all the way back to the central L.A., and I was late for this interview, and these two guys who were interviewing me wanted to go to the game. So they desperately waited for me. I walked in, and they asked me a few questions. And uh, one of them is, says, here, you've got a degree in biochemistry. I said, yes. Yeah. I said, do you happen to have your degree certificate? And Celia had warned me about this. So I happened to have it right. in, in an envelope, which was unopened. I'd never looked at it. So I opened the envelope, and I pulled out the certificate. And he looked at it and went, you graduated magna cum laude? I said, <laughs> Oh, did I? <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> anyway, I had no idea that Magna Cum Laude meant so much to the Americans. I had no clue. Anyway, they gave me the job, and I'd never really set foot in a restaurant in my life other than to eat. Yeah. And I had memorised a few of the menu items, you know, Steak Diane, Cherry's Jubilee, Caesar's Salad, uh, Bananas Foster. Um, and I just threw these names out and got the job as a
0: restaurant manager. Wow.
2: My first proper acting job. <laughs>
0: Didn't you yes. blag your way into that job by saying that you worked at the Hadley Hotel? That was on the resume. That was
2: courtesy of my sister Celia. <laughs> Celia said, you've got to have something on your resume. Uh, what fancy restaurants have you ever eaten at? And I said, well, I ate with Uncle Richard at the uh, Palace Hotel in Gestad. Oh, let's put that down. So we put that down. <laughs> and, uh, and I worked at the Hadley Hotel, you know, the most i ever served was a cheese and tomato toasty (laughs) Um, but the Hadley Hotel sounded good and so Celia called it a boutique hotel in North London (laughs) and so we called the manager of the Hadley Hotel and asked him if you get a call from the Hilton please just back Guy's story up. (laughs) Anyway it never came to that so um, I got the job anyway.
0: So then you go to Lambda.
2: Well there's a lot in between that job with the Hilton and and going to Lambda. I didn't become an actor until Uncle Richard passed Mm. which was horribly sudden in August the 5th. 1984 August the 6th in LA and I was sunning myself at the pool and my Chinese landlady uh, just called out guy 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 your uncle dead your uncle dead and I what And I ran to the television and the first time I got news of it was it was on the news it was on the same day as a plane crash in Israel and of course it was the Olympic Games as well which were on and we'd won mm-hmm. three golds that day so I remember those headlines um, and my girlfriend at the time was an actress, and uh, she knew about the relationship with Uncle Richard and my trip to Switzerland oh, yeah. with him, which I'm happy to talk about. And she said, maybe it's time for you to have a go. Now, I had been to see her in her acting classes, and I would got to know some of her friends. And I kind of had an envy for them, but it was no more than that. And I never, ever gave a thought to being a proper actor, except that a lot of my friends were actors, the people I'd hired in restaurants, you know. Uh, I was a restaurant manager, so I had to hire a lot of young people and most of them were actors, as most young people are in L.A., mm. or storyboard artists. You...
1: <laughs> I was reading up about you. I actually did a little tiny bit of homework. Oh, dear. Um, <laughs> because, you're, you know, to me, you've always... Uh, this might sound a bit strange But you've always seen like As kind of a distant big brother if that kind of thing Because James is kind of like my brother And you've been like The, the distant big brother But so it didn't Oh yes, the lurker It's sort of more of a mysterious figure Especially with your successes Which is very mysterious To James and I Viewing it from the trenches But the thing is You have this relationship With Richard Burton This extremely famous movie star mm. And I read that There were some demons there Do you care to elaborate on that And how that informed you
2: yes I think um by virtue of the trip that I took with him in 1981 where we became very close over a five-week period of time at a very vulnerable time of his life I forged a relationship with him which was more father son than it was uncle nephew Mm. and after we'd got over the you know the typical sort of him trying to impress me with stories and Hollywood knickknacks and making me laugh and telling me rude jokes you know when you spend that length of time with each other you tend to get over that and you start to talk about meaningful things. I was at a very impressionable age. I was lost at university. I really was studying something I had virtually no interest in. And he persuaded me to finish my degree. Mm. I was also in love with a girl that I couldn't seem to have. It was unrequited. I'd loved her for two years and was pretty depressed about that. So I was at a bit of a dark time in my life. And he was also at a difficult time in his life. He was separating from Susie Hunt, his third wife. And he was going through a bit of a dark time, he was recovering from a pinched nerve in his neck. And we just struck up this odd friendship, I would bring him tea in the back garden, talk about rugby and girls and Hollywood. And he seemed to laugh at my stories, Really. which I think for that sort of age differential yeah. was a mark of respect I kept him laughing and when we were in the car when he eventually invited me to drive this car to Switzerland and uh, my mother complained that i just passed my test (laughs) and uh, and he can't drive on the continent alone Richard he's never driven on the continent before he said he's not going alone Marion I'm going with him (laughs) and so (laughs) so there was born the road trip of a lifetime and during that time he also invited the girl I was in love with along for the trip in the hope that he might play Cupid and get us close together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, he enforced shared living space. Right. There was only one bedroom in Paris. Helen and I had to spend it together. Um, we actually got very, very close during that trip. but Close, but no cigar is what I said. <laughs> <laughs> in a manner of speaking, of course. <laughs> um but it was a trip that changed my world Mm. um it gave me confidence and it also gave me a father that james and i had lost sadly yeah i had known my father for 10 years of my life i had that joy and benefit james sadly didn't Mm. but there is a benefit to that to a degree i've always been craving a father figure in my life and here was richard blazing into my world for this very short period of time literally changing it around engaging me in literature and Shakespeare and poetry and suddenly at the end of it I was spat out (laughs) you know not literally but uh, it was like the the five weeks were over I was sent home and that was it yeah but that five week period completely changed my life I wasn't to know that until he died and my girlfriend said you know maybe it's time for you to have a go And so I went to this acting class in L.A., which was quite an advanced acting class. I was soon out of my depth. I knew that immediately. And I had to get some foundation training. So I engaged at uh, UCLA School of Drama. And there I did this very wide foundation course in Stanislavski, the method, Meissner technique and basic acting. And uh, I would say that I was encouraged by the response of my peers. I was British, the only Brit in the course. And I met one of my best friends, Pete Chaynor. Right. who I hope that you'll talk to at a later date, because he was a trailblazer. Yeah. Wow. And um, so I got enough confidence from that acting class to know that I could do it. There was a kind of feeling that I had a future. And one of the things we were <laughs> encouraged to do after two semesters was to go to Dramalog yeah. and find an audition. And we all went to audition for this thing. And it was a musical mm-hmm. in Studio City. And we all went to audition for this just for the experience of auditioning. I had no experience of auditioning. I had no experience of musicals, but I knew this sort of Noel Coward song. I think it's Noel Coward or the other guy. I can't remember. I don't know exactly how it started, but it started in fun. I just wanted someone to be gay with, to play with someone. But now I realize that I could never let you go. And I've come here to tell you so. Every kiss, every hug seems to act just like a drug. Anyway, I, I sang that song a cappella. Sorry, and we got no clue because we're a bit ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> I sang that song. It's okay. (laughs) And they offered me the lead role there and then in this musical. Oh, my God. And they also offered... I mean, what a sign. And then they offered the girl that I went with, who was also in my class, Gwen Fornataro, who James knows, to play my wife. (laughs) So suddenly, not only were we in our first play musical, we were both playing the leads, male and female leads in this thing. And uh, it ran for six months. Wow. Well, it continued to run. Uh, I just dropped out and actually Pete Chainer
0: took over. Oh, really?
2: (laughs) Yeah, but that gave me enough courage. I got an agent out of it. And then I started going out for commercials and TV spots and things like that. And one thing leads to another and suddenly you get going. And in the meantime, I left the restaurant business and took up carpentry that paid by the hour. Mm. Working for our sister Celia, she paid me $10 an hour. Yes. And I thought to myself, why do I want to earn $10 an hour when I can earn $12 or $15 an hour? What do I need to do to do that? So I made friends with one of the drywall foremen. And I said, can you teach me how to drywall? And he said, "Yes." Yeah. So I would turn up an hour before the day started and he would teach me how to drywall. It's not exactly hard. Hmm. I learned it quite quickly. And um, before a few weeks was out, I was up at $15 an hour. Wow! So, and that kind of income changes the world again. So yeah, yeah it was just, yeah. it's the way I rolled.
1: The questions you asked yourself are really interesting. You know, what can I do to make my income higher? And yeah. you seem to have just those right questions you asked yourself. Some of us don't ask ourselves those correct questions. And it's always interesting to meet people who do.
2: Well, I think if you're a freelancer, you've got to make the most of your day. I mean, if you want to put it in basic terms, you've got 24 hours in a day and eight are spent sleeping or getting ready for sleep and eight are spent in leisure or not. It depends how hard you work. And eight hours that you're selling to another person to pay you to live. Yeah. So I'm trying to maximise the amount of money I can make in, in those eight to ten hours a day. Yeah. That's that's
0: how I've always looked at it. Right. And you learned how to unscrew somebody's hand from a piece of drywall, right?
2: Well, I, I learned how to unscrew my own hand from the piece of drywall I'd screwed it into. <laughs> was it yours? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, no. I made every mistake there was to make in the book as far as carpentry went. Guy, what's that? At your ankle getting bigger. Is it a pool of blood? I look down, my leg is pumping blood. Oh, I seem to have snagged
0: myself. <laughs> oh, my God. oh, dear, dear. Mm. So then you eventually ended up going to England, ruining my life.
2: <laughs> he's, he's so bitter, isn't he? It wasn't intended,
0: Jen. It was a pleasant byproduct. It was. <laughs> no, I think we actually connected more than we ever had done back then. Well, we found each other again. Yes, I mean, I think
2: that, you know, as we were growing up, I had a very different life to you, if you remember. I went off to boarding school. Yes, you were kicked away. And and that was quite soon after <laughs> <laughs> after <laughs> after dad died, I was sent away to this boarding school. It seemed like a banishment for me. Yeah. But I I didn't realise how lucky I was to have that opportunity to go to this place. Yeah, mm-hmm. totally. And um, there were good and bad to it, but an incredible place it was. And then, of course, you lived at home and you were spoiled rotten. I was. Um, completely. and Mum's boy. Mummy's boy and grandma's boy and auntie Bianca's boy and everybody's boy. <laughs> and uh, I just would come home, you know, gaunt from being starved for nine weeks. And, um, <laughs> and, and I'd look at my fat brother who just goes, Mummy chips. Now, this is not true. And, and my mum would just get up off the sofa and go and make him chips. That part is true. And I couldn't understand how this happened. Um, so in those early years, James didn't understand me and I didn't understand him. And um, James also had a chance to go to Christ Hospital. Oh. And uh, he didn't want to go to Christ Hospital. I did not. So he deliberately sabotaged himself. I did. Oh. And uh, he deliberately didn't try in the exam. One could only think what it could have done for his intellect if he had gone.
1: I I agree. I agree.
0: Don't Don't side with Guy.
1: No, you've got to listen to the
2: wisdom, James. I've been telling you this for years. The word wisdom has never been uttered between James and I.
0: So then you go to Lambda you get through that amazing course and you meet a whole bunch of people. Well, Lambda was an
2: incredible course because it was basically the three-year course squeezed into one year. And also, it wasn't a walk in the park at all. And it was also expensive. I paid for that course. Hmm. With the money I'd made doing carpentry, and uh, I wasn't entitled to another grant.
1: Oh, it wasn't. Okay. And
2: in those days, they were phasing out the grants for drama students anyway. At the time,
1: mm. right. Tories. So
2: I think it cost me nine thousand pounds all in, including my living expenses.
1: Nine grand?
2: Yeah, in nineteen eighty-two. Wow, that's a lot of money. That was, I think, six grand for the course and three grand to live on. And then I was out of work for nine months. Wow. Which I'd never been, and I didn't know how to take it. Yeah. And I didn't want to go back into carpentry. Even though there was a hell of a lot going on down at Canary Wharf. In fact, I took myself down to Canary Wharf to look at the way they were building. And it was right up my street. I could have walked onto a job there and done drywall. Yeah. And been paid quite well for it. But I just could not face picking up a screw gun again. Right. So I didn't do that. Yeah. And it was the first and only time I'd ever signed onto the dole. But I knew that I had to do something for myself. Because in America, I'd always been proactive. And in America, you have to be proactive as an actor and as a freelance carpenter yeah. to keep the money rolling. In. Right. And it is expected of you as an actor in America to send out your resume to all the casting directors mm-hmm. every month. But in Britain, if they see your face unannounced or uninvited more than once a year, you are blacklisted. Jesus, No one in Britain wants to hear from you. Yes. <laughs> they don't want to know if you exist unless they've called you first. Uh, Of course, nobody knew me, so nobody called me. Mm. So I was out of work, and I had no means of changing that fate. Right. I had an agent who I'd signed in America called Norma. Norma. Now, Norma was about 105 when she signed me. (laughs) And uh, whenever I got a call from her, I said, Oh, Norma, she's still alive. (laughs) Norma was wonderful, wonderful. But she would send me off to meet myself sometimes, Mm. which was very odd. And she said, I've got a wonderful deal for you. It's a pantomime. you are playing the back half of the horse, and it's uh, 15 performances a week. And um, you, they're paying, no, you're paying them. Yes. You, oh, what? I can't read my writing, but I think it's about 150 pounds a week for 15 performances. Wonderful deal. <laughs> joy <laughs> And uh anyway, we parted company soon after that. I did manage to get myself a West End deal right. with Robert Lindsay in the West End in Cyrano de Bergerac. Yes. I'm jumping a little in the story. That's okay. And then I gave it to Norma to negotiate my deal.
1: But that gave you a legitimacy.
2: Well, it did. It did. Yeah. But I was seen by a casting director doing a one-man show that I did, the solo performance thing. She basically said, "Will you be in this West End show?" And I said, "Yes, I'll get my agent to call you." if she's still alive, (laughs) and she can negotiate my deal down, which is exactly what she did. And I then did nine months with Robert Lindsay. But going back to nine months earlier, I was out of work. I had no prospects. Nobody knew me. And I had an option of going back to America with my tail between my legs. Mm. And someone had mentioned to me about doing a one-person play. Right. In those days, they called them one-man shows. Yes. And someone had also told me about this one-man show about a goalkeeper. And I'd been a goalkeeper. And I understood what it meant to be a goalkeeper. It's a very different game to a footballer on the field of play. So I got hold of this play and got hold of the playwright, the guy called Peter Flannery, who wrote Our Friends in the North. And he wrote Singer. And he's a brilliant, brilliant playwright. And he allowed me to update it. And I then set about learning this thing, which was 90 minutes long. I'd never learned anything that long in my life. And rehearsing it. And I found an outlet. I went to my old school and said, look, I'm doing a one-person play about a goalkeeper on the field of play. Can I do it at the school? In fact, I think you
0: guys saw my first ever performance in the back garden. Yeah. We did. We did. We actually discussed this in a previous podcast where Martin did the artwork for your posters. That's right. Yes,
1: which I'm waiting to
2: collect. Well, I've got to find it. (laughs) No. (laughs) I think you gave me the original pencil artwork, didn't you? Oh, I'd love to say that. It's probably dreadful. My apologies. I think someone took a rubber to it. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing
1: is, Guy, just to interject there, as I usually do, is that the genius of you're not working, what are you going to do? You've listened to the cues from the universe, as it were. I know, one-man show. And from that has blossomed this whole
2: industry. Well, I, I hadn't any idea what being in a one-person play was going to do to me. I had produced a theatre show. The show that I was in before I left America, I had basically produced. I'd done the posters and the leaflets and done all the organisation and arranged the rehearsal space. But that's as far as I knew what production was. So I had that experience. Mm. And um, when I started doing this one-person play, again, you've got to find the outlets. I called up all these schools and said, I've got a show about a footballer, blah, 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 blah. Can I do the show? They say, what's your fee? And I went, fee? (laughs) Oh, um... I don't know, yeah. what do you normally pay? And they would say, oh, we paid £350 of performance. I'm going, what? £350 <laughs> of performance? Sure, I'll do that. And suddenly I had about 15 performances lined up at £350 and you do the math on that, wow. you know, it's a bit of an income. Yeah. But the main thing was, the moment I got out the there on my own in a piece of that nature, which spoke to me so deeply about loneliness and about what it's like to be different, I found I was talking to these kids very profoundly, I suppose in a way that uncle richard talked to me mm. on that trip and i found that when i was talking to the school kids in the school itself taking workshops and master classes and things like that mm. i found that the work that i was doing meant something mm. suddenly it wasn't about me mm. it was no longer about me trying to get a bigger job bigger role playing hamlet it was about what my work was doing to the audience interesting and it changed my world completely on its head mm. I suddenly had no desire. I mean, obviously, if someone offered me Hamlet, I'd do it. If someone offered me King Lear, I'd do it. But for the most part, I fell in love with the idea that my work could help or change or move and actually contribute to the soul of the audience. And so it gave me a completely different raison d'etre. So I did that one person play. I played it in about 100 schools around the country. Mm. And then I got seen by this casting director and she offered me a nine-month role in the West End. So suddenly I was on a wage. Right. Very different West End wage. And I was thinking to myself during that nine-month run, I don't want to be doing this for the rest of my life. I do not want to run for nine months playing the same role, blah, 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 blah. It's not about the money. It's not about survival. It's not what I want to do. And I had a great experience working with Robert Lindsay because the man is a genius. Right. And he can make anybody laugh with a raised eyebrow. Yeah. You know, so working alongside a genius like that was a huge lesson, but that's when I decided to do a second solo show. Hmm. And so I decided first I fired the agent because she'd negotiated my deal down. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Punt. Um, And so I was on my own after leaving nine months with no work lined up. And I decided that I would do another one person play. And I elected to do under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. Because it's a play that I absolutely adore. It was the play that Uncle Richard introduced me to in Switzerland. Mm. And it was a play in which all my uncles and aunts in Wales appeared in my head. So as these characters popped into my head, I could think, oh, that's Auntie Hira. Oh, that's Auntie Betty. Oh, that's Uncle Di. That's Uncle Verdon,
0: you know. And uh, so I could populate. This, this is news to me because I had no idea that you're basing this amazing play and all of these intricate characters on family members. A
2: lot of them, yeah. Grandpa's Captain Cat, for example.
0: Well, I, I figured that one. And
2: Garter, uh, I think of Grandma because she's the, she's the Earth Mother mm-hmm. and this beautiful woman who just loves... And that's grandma, you know. So I did this one-person version, which had never been attempted before, of Under Milkwood, And miracle, of all miracles, it worked. Mm -hmm. And that was another Mm -hmm. thing that changed my life because suddenly I took it to the Edinburgh Festival. It was a hit, and my world changed again.
0: Amazing.
1: Can I just ask just a couple of questions? One is, so that play was quite different from the Flannery one because you're doing many more roles. Yeah. So in that space, you've got the script, you've got the direction, you've got the lighting cues, and you've got all these parts. How on earth do you get your head round that?
2: Well, technically, I always say, learn the lines, everything follows. And if you give over to yourself to the lines, think of the words that you speak as an actor as a piece of music. Hmm. And you learn them, and then you allow them to play you. You don't act them, you allow them to play you. But being in a solo play... You're not affected by other people speaking to you. So really, it's all about the sort of headspace that you're in. Yeah. So you do something like that. You clear your headspace and you pull the string and off you go. Mm. And you tell
0: the story and that's what you do. It's like playing an instrument, except you are the instrument. Interesting. I mean, I have a question. You do two versions of the play. There's the full Undermilk Wood. And then you do a shorter version yeah. under Undermilk Wood semi-skimmed, which means you've obviously cut parts out. Yeah. And on any given run... Yeah. You will do variations thereof, mm. maybe one after the other, one in the morning, one in the evening. How do you... Yeah, that's a
2: bit of a head... Um, I was going to use a rude word, <laughs> but um, yeah,
0: it is a bit of a problem.
2: It's like playing the Moonlight Sonata and then sort of going off into the middle section halfway through and then coming back to the end of it. And you've got to learn the transitions and then you can literally nip and tuck and because mm. you know it so well, you can do
0: it. But the thing is, is that you've got so many plays in your head I mean, obviously, when you went from that to Animal Farm and to... Um, uh, oh, I can't remember. <laughs> here, we, here we go. Here, here, here we go. <laughs> what, what did my brother do? Uh, <laughs> but when you go from all these different plays, you've got them all stored in your head. And it never ceases to amaze me how you manage to go from one to the other
2: with a little bit of prep. But the one thing you're saying, you're putting your finger on what is memory. And memory is a blanket phrase for something that you know so well, you don't have to think about it. Mm. And musicians have huge, vast memories. I mean, Ashkenazi, for example, can play you from memory every single Chopin, Nocturne and Prelude. I mean, that's far more than I've known. Mm. I mean, if you take every note as a byte, as in a computer byte then he's got a 10 gigabyte memory. i probably got a five gigabyte memory with the amount of bytes that I've used my memory. But the human brain is much bigger than we know. We don't even tap into what potential we've got.
1: James knows this.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't like either of you right now. (laughs) I think that memory is a resource that
2: we only need to find a way of tapping into it and all kinds of stuff can come out. But in my case, I chose to do solo plays, and that involved learning lines. And learning lines is just grunt work. You've just got to just get on with it. Right. And once you know them, they're there. And you don't have to do much research or remembering. If you've done the initial learning first and you keep replenishing, it keeps coming back.
1: So the Edinburgh Festival, which you were known as the raven
2: of the Edinburgh Festival, <laughs> apparently. <laughs> the what? The raven. <laughs> the, uh... Known as the raven. Oh, the kid. Oh. Yeah, because they, if, you, yeah.
1: if you left, it would... Collapse.
2: Oh, uh, yeah, but I was whinging about something and I threatened never to come back and someone called me the raven. Um, my relationship with Edinburgh is such that Edinburgh is the greatest arts festival on the planet. It's the second biggest event in the world, second only to the Olympics. I don't know whether you know that.
1: I didn't at all. In terms of number of
2: tickets sold, number of people involved, number of people who are travelling into one city over a period of time. Mm. I mean, it's not a small event. And given that it's all arts-based, it should be taken much more seriously by the government, Mm. Scottish government and the national government. Anyway, I happened to have two big hits when I started, and that got me established. And then that sent me around the world, performing in various countries. And I would see performers who would blow my mind. Yeah and i'd start up a conversation and they would say oh we would love to come to edinburgh how do you do it and i said well look it's too difficult to explain but i'll help you so i would then present them in edinburgh or produce them in edinburgh and they were so good they made me look good yeah uh, so my name was on their posters they would win an award and i became an accidental producer mm. i've never really wanted to be a producer i've always produced because i've had to produce my own work and now I know how to do it. I wouldn't go to another producer to produce my work. Although, that said, when you want to go into the big league, you need a big league producer to yeah. help you make that leap. Right. And we can talk about that later on. Yeah. But in terms of controlling my life, I was able to decide what I wanted to do and when. And it gave me financial independence. And uh, it enabled me to stay doing what I wanted to do, work with artists that I wanted to work with, very, very creative beings, always be in the creative sector and never have to worry about where my next gig was going to come from Mm. because I was making where that next gig was coming
0: from. Right.
2: Um, The other strand to that was that I was producing, I was performing... And I was doing a lot of fixing plays. Mm. So, is that like screenwriting type of fixing plays? You know, script doctoring. This, this, yeah. Yeah, it's script doctoring for plays saying, yeah. oh, this will work in Britain. This might not. We need to fix this. Blah, blah, blah. I found myself fixing plays. And I guess the proof of the pudding is in the eating. The shows were successful. So I realized, oh, maybe I can write a bit. Maybe I do know what I'm talking about. So I started to write my own stuff as well. And then, as far as directing goes, that started with a play about Richard Burton, right? which happened to pop up into my field of vision. I'm going, oh my God, there's a play about Uncle Richard. If there is going to be a play about Uncle Richard, I want to know about it. I want to be involved. Because part of what happened on that trip that I took with him was that I got to know the real Burton, not the YouTube Burton. Not the Burton that pops up in all these interviews with Parkinson and mm-hmm. yeah. is full of bravado and gusto and piss and vinegar and all of that stuff. The real Burton was a very private, charming, funny reflective often melancholic human being Mm. he was a beautiful man so when this play popped up about him i went to see it it was basically a stand-up comedic routine about richard burton and the guy doing it josh richards and this is an extraordinary coincidence he had been my flatmate at cardiff university for two terms what Um, amazing it's it's mental (laughs) it's absolutely mental he had been my flatmate He was studying at the Royal Welsh College. It wasn't the Royal Welsh at the time, it was the Welsh College. And I was studying biochemistry. And for two terms, we lived together. I thought he was crazy, and he probably still is crazy. But he was a brilliant actor, and then I never saw him again.
0: Oi, what's going on?
2: Two-parter, matey, two-parter.
0: No, come on, let it run in its entirety.
1: No, no, the best is yet to come, my impatient chum. Let's let the two people
0: in Potter's Bar savour it a bit. Right, well, we'll see you next week with part two The Shark is Broken interview with my friend, my brother, Guy Masterson. Till sure, then, then. Ciao for now.